0: Good morning, church. This is Pastor Will today. I'm just excited to be with you uh, this morning or to speak to you. I, I, I would be more excited if we were uh, actually together. And so I, I just wanted to take a moment and explain that uh, you might be having a variety of emotions at this time. One of the things I think is, is very common, and I'll speak first person, What's very common, I think, is to, as you go through life, you have a lot of negative emotions, negative feelings about a variety of things. But most of the time, we're able to kind of suppress them because we're busy. So if you're busy, you just kind of keep doing whatever it is that you're doing, and you don't actually deal with what's going on inside of you. And so what's happening is when we slow down, when I slow down, Sometimes the negative emotions that my, I might have felt but kind of suppressed because I was busy kind of have time to come up. And so I've been able to talk with a variety of you about uh, some of the the um, emotions that you've been feeling uh, during this time, during uh, this pandemic, which the fact that we're in a pandemic is a negative emotion in and of, in of itself, but also the fact that some of us, many of us have more time to sit and to think. And so sometimes those emotions that we might have suppressed or ignored um, can come up. And So I want to say that, one, if you are feeling some negative emotion, whether it's sadness, anger, fear, I, I just want to say that is normal. That is a normal thing to feel. It's a normal thing that when you are slowed down, when you're forcibly slowed down, that you have emotions and feelings that, um, that were always there, but you have to deal with. And so the question is, when you face those negative emotions, what exactly do you do? And I don't have a step-by-step process, but I just want to share with you what I think is from the Scriptures. The first thing we need to understand is that because Jesus lived in this earth, um, he understands the variety of emotions and temptations that we would face. So Hebrews talks about that. He's not a high priest or or a mediator that would connect us to God that doesn't understand where we're coming from, but he was tempted and had trials in every way like we would. And so when that means, that means when I come to him, I'm coming to someone who is not foreign to what I'm experiencing. I'm coming to someone who's very near and understands where I'm coming from. And not only that, that he can uniquely give me strength to deal with and endure negative circumstances and negative emotions because he himself has experienced those very things. So we can run to him for strength because he will uniquely understand us and he will uniquely strengthen us. And one of the ways that he strengthens us is by sharing the burden together. So I want to encourage you, if you are feeling down, out, scared, tired, whatever, I want to encourage you to reach out. You can reach out to me, reach out to others in the church. Some have already reached out, and I have I've been uh, privileged to be able to speak to you and share burden with you. I want us to not stuff stuff down, but to be honest and open about what we're dealing with and receive healing from the Lord through his words spoken to each other and through prayers prayed for one another. So I just want—I don't, I don't have a lot of time to just talk to y'all. This is the time I can, so I'm just saying that. To you, um, we're going to be in John chapter eight. John chapter eight this week in verse two. John eight verse two it should be on the screen. Uh, but this scripture, I don't really think it needs an introduction. is interesting in of itself. So I'm going to start in verse two. Let's read. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him, him being Jesus. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. and the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They asked him this to trap him in order that they might might have have evidence to accuse him, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down and and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, They left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our understanding that we might uh, profit something from your word. Lord, would would you give us ears to hear and would your word not simply enter our minds, but would it sink deep into the core of our being? Would you teach us what you want to teach us today? Open up our hearts to receive and help us by your grace to submit and obey to what you said in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing we come is we see Jesus doing the thing that he was known to do, which is teach. Verse 2, it says, At dawn he went to the temple again, so he got up early in the morning and went to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. So it, this, this talks about Jesus' uh, main mission. Jesus came to teach about God's nature and God's kingdom. Now here's the interesting thing. This is the fundamental question we all have, especially in the middle of suffering. Like, these are the questions that come up when, when we're suffering, when, when life is going uh, bad, we're like, well, where is God? What is he like? Does he care? Okay, and so the the beautiful thing is that in those moments, we can remember what Jesus has said, knowing that he has come to demonstrate what God is like, how he feels about things and how he acts towards various things. We're in this, the middle of suffering right now, but, but comparatively, when we look back in New Testament times where they didn't have amenities and the various health care, they had a, a much higher rate of suffering, and Jesus comes to them in the middle of a world that's suffering and teaches them about God. In Luke four forty three, it says, But he, Jesus, said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus was, was, uh, was going about, and, and God was, was coming through Jesus to forgive sins and to bless people. This is the story of his life. Jesus showed mercy on the ones that no one else would show mercy on, and he went about demonstrating to others God's care and character as he did this. He taught that God was bringing the fullness of his kingdom to the world. This example of his teaching would be in the Sermon on the Mount. We take, Get some time, read Matthew uh, 5, uh, 6, and 7. It is a, a, a summary of Jesus' teaching. But the, some, of, some of it is this, is that what would it be like to live in a world where people were loving and praying for the enemies, where there is a humble, persistent prayer, where people serve their neighbors so that when people ask to borrow stuff, they're like, here, you can have it. And that a world that was that wanted a consistent righteousness, that not simply a righteousness of of external actions, but a righteousness, a right living, a morality of the heart. Now, Jesus came demonstrating God's mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, the goodness of his kingdom. And to the religious leaders, there seems to be a conflict in what Jesus was talking about. How could Jesus be speaking about mercy, which means not giving others what they deserve, when they viewed God as a God of justice? How could Jesus be teaching about a God of mercy when they saw God as primarily a God of justice? See, the other religious leaders in his day They wanted to emphasize the holiness and righteousness of God and saw conflict with the mercy that Jesus taught, which brings us to the story. So in verse 3, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, hear this verse six says, they asked this to trap him in order that they may have evidence to accuse him. They wanted to catch him in a contradiction. This is the point. Now, the interesting thing is that we can see from the evidence that these religious people, these self-righteous people who wanted to vindicate their own opinion, did not actually care about God's law. Think about it. They brought this woman there to shame her in front of a crowd in the middle of a teaching session. Like, imagine you're sitting at church, and somebody just busts in and throws somebody caught in some particular sin in the middle of the church and says, preacher, what are you going to do about that? They they didn't care about God's justice. They wanted to prove a point. They used this instance of her sin to score points. And do we not see that today? That if someone has something on you, some sin on you, they might use it in such a way that would hurt you. Not because they care about righteousness, but because they don't like you. One more thing I'd point out is the Scripture says that they caught this woman in adultery. Now, if I'm doing my math right, that takes at least two people, okay? So so they did not even bring the man. They didn't bring the other offending party. So that they're showing uh, uh, gender discrimination in the middle of their seemingly uh, uh, righteous cares. See, this is the thing. They are misusing God's law. They are are not using God's law because they care about what God cares about. They're using God's law, God's commands, in order to make themselves look better and make themselves feel good. This is unrighteous, and we ourselves need to be careful about that. Do we care about God's law because we care what God says, or do we use it as a tool to get what we want? If we use God's law as only a hammer to make ourselves look good and make others look less good, then we are using it in the same way as these religious leaders who are opposing Jesus. Now, here's one thing I want to point out. What they said is true, that in the law of Moses, if you read the Old Testament, that in that law, this sin does warrant death, which seems harsh. It's like, whoa. Now, remember, they, they didn't care about it. They, they were trying to use God's law to make themselves look better, but they can even use a true statement and, and, and make it so that it benefits them and does not really highlight God's goodness and his justice. But this law, in the Old Testament law, did warrant death. Now, here's the deal. If anyone who has been a victim of this particular sin understands the seriousness of it, right? We can all think about the broken relationships, the trust that's torn in two. Think about the, 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 the litany of, of broken families, of children deprived of one or one, either the mother or the father, because of this particular sin. See, serious sin is not only serious because God said it, although that is true and the chief reason, but the reason God sets standards is because sin destroys. Now listen. This sin destroys, but the Bible says that the result of all sin, in some ways, warrants a judgment of death. Romans 6, it says, for the wages of sin is death. So if, you, if we are living in sin, if we're dealing out sin, which we are, we're dealing out sin What is the appropriate response of us dealing out hurt and lies and and shaming others and, and theft? When we are dealing out sin, what works itself out is death. Now listen, whether you're spiritually inclined or not, you can observe that when people are not loving other people, that it is working death in the world. That we can see hate. And hate is not simply an emotion that stays by itself, but it's one that produces uh, 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 violence and, and, and racism and discrimination. We can see that sin works itself out in death because it is a violation of what God wants and values and because it hurts those around us. Not only that, Jesus demonstrated that outward sin begins as inward sin. Matthew 5:28 says, it is Jesus talking, he says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in no way do we need to interpret what Jesus is saying as that he does not care about sin. But really, what we have to do is understand that one of the primary purposes of God's law is that it reveals sin in us. It reveals sin in us. So so before we would stick our finger out at anyone else using God's commands, We first would have those commands point the finger at us. Look, here's Romans 7, uh, verse 12. It says, so then the law, God's commands, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, just, and good. So God's commands are good. Then it says, therefore, did what is good become deaf to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. What he's talking about is this, is that when he would hear, when Paul, the one who wrote this, when he would hear God's command, there was something in him that would rise up and want to do the opposite. So God says, serve somebody and Something in him goes, nah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. When God says, be content. Something in him goes, nah, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Now, the command is good. God's commands are good. They result in loving others. But the fact of the matter is that when God's law, when his commands come on our hearts, it actually reveals the real state of our hearts. And the real state of our heart is that we would rebel Against what is good. So, God's law, in a way, strips away um, the false views that we would have about ourselves. That when God is revealing his commands, if we are honest, we can say, "I, I see myself there. I see myself there. So, remember the primary use of God's law is not a weapon that you would use against others. It is so that you would have a right estimation of who you are. So that when God's law is placed up against your conduct, your conduct would be revealed for what it really is. Now, you we, we all understand how this works. Now, you, you those of you who have children when I tell my children, hey, you shouldn't do that, it's almost like I should have said the opposite thing, because now they're like, well, I probably should do that now. This is how God's law is working us. When the good law comes to a heart that is deceived and wrapped in sin, then the good law reveals the badness of sin. So in the story, we see the religious leaders around Jesus using God as like a gun to shoot other people, but we can see Jesus using God's law properly. Let's go back to the text in verse 6. It says, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first one to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. Now, everybody is always wondering what was Jesus doing writing the ground? It's kind of a strange story, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, They're asking him a question, and he just kind of is like, do 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 Like I, I read a lot of commentaries. I read a lot of speculation. Some people think uh, he was probably writing their sins down, or he was writing God's law down. Nobody knows because it doesn't say, right? But we understand that he's writing on the ground. What is clear is that he did not even dignify their question. Uh, imagine, imagine you come to me, and you ask me a serious question. And I just start writing on the ground. you be like, did, did you hear what I said? Can you, I, I'm asking you a serious question. And Jesus is, I don't know if he's looking at them. He, he's not concerned with them. See, this is the Lord's response towards self-righteousness. When we think that we are awesome and that we are so great and that God owes us attention because we think we're so great, God's response is, that doesn't impress me, that doesn't interest me, that does not cause my attention to come to you. Again, they were using the law wrong. They were using the law as ammo, not as a mirror to look at themselves. So what Jesus did is he made them apply the law to their own hearts first, right? Right? So he, so they come to him and say, hey, this woman's caught in adultery. We, we, we need to do something. We need to punish her. We need to punish her. And Jesus says, well, why don't you look at yourself? Have you broken the law? Now, they don't say anything, but they one by one left. They saw God's commands, and they realized that they had not done them. What's interesting is it says that It started with those who were older or more mature. The more mature among them understood their sin a little better. Growth is related to the awareness of our sin. Listen, I feel my sin more than 10 years ago. I know God's word a little bit better. I've been around God in prayer. I've been around holy people. And the reality of my own state has only become more clear to me. This is the, the, the growth of the Christian life is kind of turned in on its head because as we get closer to the light, our own darkness is exposed even more. So we have this the, the, the Lord teaching them how to use God's commands properly. That it's not that I use it as a bat to hit people over the head with, but I point it to myself. And this is what he had them do, and they realized, oh, snap, I can't go using it as a bat because I am culpable. So then we have Jesus forgiving this woman in verse 10. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. See, Jesus forgives us. So, so, so what, one thing that's clear is from Jesus' response is that she was guilty. She was legitimately guilty. They didn't, they didn't get it wrong that she had sinned. She was guilty. It was obvious that she was guilty because Jesus said, don't go sin no more. Yet even though she was legitimately guilty Jesus because of his grace and because of his mercy forgives her I want you to understand the gospel is not just for little itty bitty sins it's not for accidents it's for real sin so if you feel like you have the weight of real sin on you Jesus says I am ready to forgive you And then Jesus tells her not to walk in sin anymore. Now, this is the proper response to forgiveness. Listen, if if the Lord Jesus says, I forgive you of sin, and then you walk around like, well, I guess sin don't matter anymore. You got the wrong message because sin is fundamentally about a sin against God. So if someone forgives you and then you go and do the exact same thing over and over again without a care in the world, you are demonstrating that you don't care about their forgiveness. But if we have really been forgiven by Jesus, we would be careful how we walk because we would understand that our sin is not just nebulous in the atmosphere. Our sin is saying, God, I hear what you are saying and I don't care. Sin is personal to God. So she got a personal forgiveness from God in the flesh. And Jesus said, don't go in sin anymore. Don't walk in darkness. Don't walk in pain and destruction. Now, here is the fundamental question. How, how can God in Jesus both be a God of mercy and a God of justice? Because that is the question that they wanted to trap him in. How could Jesus forgive this woman who may may have well destroyed somebody's family? How could he forgive this woman and still be a God of justice? We have to look at Romans 3, verses 23 to understand this, verses 23 to 26. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you're questioning, is that you? Then go read God's law and say if you've fallen short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. So the short teaching is this: he starts off with: we have all sinned, right? We've all sinned. All of us have done things that are wrong, that have, that have disregarded God and have hurt our friends and our neighbors, our family around us. But then he says, but we have access to justification through Christ's redemption. What this means is this, that, that we have something that is even more precious than forgiveness. Justification is not simply saying that your slate is clean, but it's, it's that you got merit on it. It's like saying you took a test and you got a negative 50, and Jesus uh, takes the test for you and gives you 100. It's not a clean slate. It's that when God looks at you, if you are in Christ Jesus, that he sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, how, how could this be? How could this be? He says that, that we... Uh, God presented him as, as the mercy seat by his blood. Basically, the mercy seat was at the temple where you had sacrifices, that Jesus on the cross was dying in our place. His blood was spilt in our place for our sins. Again, not simply for uh, uh, hypothetical sins, but actual sins. That's why his blood was spilled, so that we would be forgiven and that we would be seen as righteous and good in God's eyes. Listen, it was his blood for ours. Though sin, uh, the the righteous judgment for sin is death, Jesus said, I'm going to take it for them. And in this, we see how God can forgive justly. Jesus did not only forgive the woman in the story we just read. Jesus died and suffered for that woman's sin so that she, be, she will be forgiven. Listen, this means that God is just because he does not turn a blind eye to sin. Sin is serious. It's serious enough that the Son of God was split, that He would spill his blood. Sin is not a joke. It's not a trifle. It's not something to be passed over. Sin has to be dealt with. And God has dealt with sin in the blood of Jesus. So that when he looks at us, he forgives us and sees the goodness of Jesus. God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He deals with it on the cross. And he is the justifier because he declares us righteous through faith. How can a God who is holy and loving display both mercy and justice? We see it in the cross. That on the cross, God deals with the right consequences of our sinful destruction and at the same time offers forgiveness for all who would come to him. That's how our God is both just and the justifier. Now, one thing I keep thinking about the story is I keep thinking about the fact that Jesus was riding on the dirt. Now, I, I don't have any idea what he was riding. Nobody knows. Nobody knows for sure what he was writing. But the the part that keeps sticking out to me is that it's amazing to me that the king of of kings would be touching dirt. Now, I've never met a king, but I understand that kings live in immaculate palaces. I understand that kings don't clean after themselves. They have somebody else clean. I understand that kings don't touch... Foul things, but they keep themselves clean and their house clean and immaculate and beautiful. But the king who was above every other king said that he would stoop down and touch dirt. This demonstrates that Jesus would stoop down from heaven to touch the dirtiness of our world. The religious leaders might have seen this adulterous woman as someone who was less than dirt. But beloved, Jesus is not afraid to touch dirty things. So if you feel dirty because of your sin, you need to know that Jesus runs to those who are dirty and defends them with his very life. We have a Savior who didn't just, hadn't just sat in heaven and looked over and maybe felt some sort of compassion But his compassion moved him to come and live in the middle of a sinful world where people aren't listening to him. He has religious leaders trying to combat him. And he ultimately ends up on the cross, a dirty and gory execution because he loves us. Beloved, our king is not afraid of dirt. He is not afraid of sin. Our Jesus defends sinners with his blood. So how then shall we respond? Two things, two things, two things. First, is that no matter who you are, you need to let God's law expose your sin. When you hear the scriptures, when you read the scriptures, when you understand God's command, do not be like the religious leaders and simply use it as a tool to accuse other people. Let it look at you. Do I have this sin? Do I have this tendency? Beloved, the answer will be yes. But when your sin is exposed by God's law, you would run to the grace of Jesus, remembering that he died not for sins nebulous, but sins specific, for your specific sins, that he died for those sins, and that he rose from the dead, and he was willing and ready to give you forgiveness right now. Beloved, this is the way of humility, and this is the way of growth, that our sins would be exposed, but that wouldn't have to terrify us, because we would know that we have a Savior who loves and defends sinners, who dies for sinners, who forgives sinners. That's our Savior. That's our Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask by the power of the Spirit that you would let this message of the gospel sink down deep. For the one who has already trusted in you, Lord, let us be encouraged anew about your mercy and grace towards us revealed this day. And for the one who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would trust you, that they would run to you knowing that you defend sinners, that you love sinners, that you justify sinners. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.